G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Neil Johnson with you. It is the Friday edition of 2020 and an inspiring story today of a life filled with practical faith and determination that takes an Aussie kid raised on an outback sheep station to a high-flying world mixing with the rich and the famous. It's a story about character forged in the bush as preparation for conquering the business world. It's the story of an outback kid raised on a family property called Jumble Plains in western New South Wales. That's just west of Dubbo. To a business high flyer crossing the Atlantic on the Concord as casually as most people catch a bus. It's the boy from the bush whose achievements include redeveloping the rocks area on Sydney's foreshore. He led the biggest property development company in Sydney. He's led the company that developed a city in Egypt for 45,000 people and was eventually appointed president of what became the world's largest gold company, Barrick Gold. There's a roller coaster ride in there in times of plenty and challenging times of despair. But it's not all about business. Tony McClellan has also made an enormous contribution to the Christian foundations of modern Australia. For nearly 10 years, he was the chairman of the Australian Christian Lobby, honoured on his retirement with the title Chairman Emeritus. Tony McClellan has just released his story in a book called A Glorious Ride from Jumble Plains to Eternity, written with political and cultural commentator Nick Cater and a foreword by former Prime Minister John Howard. It's our absolute privilege to share some insights from Tony's life today. A special welcome along to 2020 to you, Tony McClellan. Well, Neil, thank you very much. You've honoured me greatly. Thank you. Tony, the very first words in the opening chapter, you say the first secret to success in life is to choose your ancestors well. Well, we don't always get to choose our family, but uh, you might like to take us back to your family environment in those early days. Well, thank you, Neil. Thank you. I had uh, the very good fortune to be the grandson of a very successful Scottish migrant. Actually, he was born in Australia, but his dad came out from Scotland. And uh, it was he who selected the Jumble Plains property and developed it and became extremely well-known in the district. And um, and my dad uh, came along as uh, one of six kids in the family, and he took over the uh, property. But my dad was an alcoholic. And... Uh, was a struggle for him to achieve what his father had achieved and eventually at age 44 in fact on his 44th birthday he died in a lonely hospital bed in Tullamore Hospital 
And those beginnings, as you say, you can trace your ancestry, a wonderful, solid and uh, inspirational grandfather and your own father, who no doubt you loved, but there were some weaknesses there. At the end of your first chapter, I started with those first words, at the end of your first chapter, and reflecting on your life at Jumble Plains and all sorts of things, uh, scraping the maggots off the sheep, mending fences and killing rabbits, you use the words, the doggedness and staying power I learned on the land are the universal keys to success in life. Those hardships of being raised on a sheep station and uh, the challenges and the good things about family, these things shape us, don't they? They sure do. They sure do. And when you uh, live in the bush and raised in the bush, it's all sort of natural. It's part of life. And it doesn't uh, really occur to you what you're doing. But it's so different. If you've got a fence down, you can't say, well, I'll come back on Tuesday and do that. You have to do it now. If, uh, if the windmill breaks down, well, you have to climb it yourself and fix it. There's just no time for mucking around. You have to roll up your sleeves and get stuck into it. And I think um, the age of 16, when my dad died, when I took over running the property, it really impacted me, the responsibility to get things done. Responsibility and work ethic. In fact, that carried on into your career as you got a start and working 60 hours a week, six days a week, a big factor in success? Uh, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it was. And uh, and I still work long hours now. But uh, uh, on the land, uh, you don't sort of... uh, clock on and clock on, clock off. You just do what you have to do that day. And whatever day of the week it is, you just roll up your sleeves and do it. And I think that's a big advantage to me. And when we moved, uh, my wife and I moved to Sydney so I could study uh, that sort of um, culture and belief was such an important factor in my doing well Uh, at my studies. So I think I just decided to get stuck into it and work really hard and with a lot of determination committed, not particularly about my intellect, it's about my work ethic, I think. Work ethic, important, and you applied that into your study. You were studying property valuation and becoming involved in property development, and that led to a couple of big opportunities there where you began to move into some really significant uh, ways that you were participating, even in the development of what we know as modern Sydney. Well, I've had uh, had the great pleasure and honour of working on some major projects uh, helping to plan them, put the put them together, do the feasibility studies, and uh, both in Sydney and Melbourne, and also in Adelaide, and that led to my being asked by the New South Wales government to give them advice on the redevelopment of the Sydney Rocks area, which I worked on for over a year, and it was a great, a lot of intense work, but uh, a great uh, pleasure, and that in turn led to my my being invited to uh, visit Egypt and look at this new project was in the planning stage, 
meet the Egyptian officials. And uh, when I came back, uh, the chairman of the company said, uh, thank you very much for your comments. Uh, they're very helpful. Now I'd like you to go and run it, <laughs> which was such a shock uh, to me. But uh, he uh, very persuasive and became a real mentor of mine. And I uh, obviously talked to my wife about it, and we decided to learn Arabic, pack uh, up, and take the three kids and move to Egypt. And that's what we did. You moved to Egypt. You even learnt Arabic so you could communicate in the business community. Right. And you found yourself yeah. then mixing in circles with the president of Egypt. And uh, while everything went smoothly in those early planning stages, not everything went smoothly for you as things began to get to a point where uh, real progress would be made. That's right. That's right. And uh, it was... Uh it was an honor and a joy. I met some very famous people, not only the president, but his, uh, his uh, ministers and, of course, the major investors in the company, mainly from Saudi Arabia, but also from the Gulf. And so being able to speak Arabic was a, a huge plus in dealing with those, even though I wasn't uh, polished and perfectly fluent. I could understand most things and they could, uh, I think, really appreciate the fact that I'd made an effort and uh, and made the whole sort of atmosphere much more productive. And uh, in due course, when uh, uh, the project is starting to really take shape, uh, President Sadat's opposition, he allowed opposition for the first time, political opposition, they started, started to mount a campaign to bring the project to an end because uh, they felt that this was really Egypt, although Egypt owned 40% of the project and would own 100% after 99 years, they didn't uh, like that particularly and mounted the campaign and eventually President Sadat, and despite have been a fantastic promoter and supporter of the project, decided one day to cancel it. So that was a huge, uh, well, it wasn't a shock in a way, but it was, uh, you know, because it, it came out of the blue. And so that uh, we have a thousand people working on the project there. So it had to be demobilized and um, then uh, went through a whole lot of legal steps. And eventually we launched into a claim against the government of Egypt for the cancellation of the project under the contract we had uh, they were able to do that and that claim lasted then for 13 and three quarter years went on and on and on and uh, it was only I think the probably the country upbringing that gave me the determination and the resolution to keep fighting and eventually, uh, I'm jumping ahead of myself here, eventually the Egyptian government's attorney came to our house. We were then living in Atlanta, Georgia, USA, came to our house, had lunch, went downstairs to my office and made the offer, at which we accepted. I brought that to an end after 13 and three quarter years millions and millions of dollars in legal fees and huge amount of anguish and effort to get there.
One of those parallel things that happen when you are in the business world, sometimes fighting a corporate court battle uh, while you're pursuing other dimensions of your own career. But it's not all about business in your book too. And I might say congratulations because this year you marked 60 years of marriage to your wife, Ray. And it's all a part of what you might appreciate in the title of your book, A Glorious Ride. I wonder whether you can take us back to... Those early days, you're courting Ray, and uh, you're not bad at cracking the head off a black snake. Let's just change <laughs> a bit of direction here, because this was one of your early dates. Oh, uh, what a story. Uh, I just, you know, I did that without really thinking about it, wanting to show off, no doubt, to this beautiful school teacher, probably 19 years old, and I was, uh, I had dance orchestras in the bush and I was off to, to an engagement, picked her up to take her with me and uh, running uh, uh, along uh, the long dusty road and the big black snake crossing and said, have you ever seen how you uh, cracked the head off a snake? And we braked and broke the back of the snake and I jumped out of the car and went to pick it up and it uh, reared up and, uh, and struck at me and fortunately I was able to leap back out of the out of its reach, but uh, I did kill it. And then I said, now let me show you what I do. And I picked the snake up by its tail and cracked it, and its head flew off in the, into the bush somewhere. And we got back into the uh, the ute uh, to carry on to the dance. And there on the dashboard was the forked tongue of the snake. It had come out of its head somehow. <laughs> And came come in through the open window and stuck on the dashboard. And here's this poor nineteen-year-old girl from from the city was appalled to see a forked tongue on the on the dashboard. <laughs> so that uh, that may be locked in our relationship. But it's the most glorious thing. Uh, I could never ever imagine anything more important than that. Wonderful, wonderful woman of mine. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Wonderful to have you with us. And our special guest this hour is Tony McClellan. Just released his story in a book called A Glorious Ride from Jumble Plains to Eternity. Tony, if we pick up your story, you were having that, as we described, the parallel corporate court battles over the city that you were building in Egypt. But you were offered a wonderful opportunity to become president of what would become the biggest gold company in the world. Uh, tell us about your connection to Barrick Gold. Well, thank you, Neil. The uh, the the chairman of the company uh, responsible for the city in Egypt was a fellow called Peter Monk, who's a Hungarian Jewish man who'd migrated to Canada and was an outstanding uh, a person who I really admired, and uh, I'm sure he did me. We. Uh, he asked me, when we, after the nationalisation, we moved to London and I uh, was working with him in the office in London and he asked me if I'd go to 
be prepared to go to Toronto and build a new office for he and uh, his colleagues. And I agreed to do that. We went and got the office up and running, and uh, he moved across. Not so long after, a few months after, he called me one day, said, Tony, are you free? Uh, and I said, oh, in five minutes, I'll finish what I'm doing, and I'll, I'll come and meet you. And I went up to, uh, he arranged to meet in the hotel next, almost next door, walked in the room, and uh, he was there with his partner. And he said, we've, uh, we've decided to sell our hotel chain. They owned 69 hotels uh, and resorts, principally in the Pacific. I said, boy, congratulations. And they said, yes, and we want to start a resources company uh, in gold and oil and gas. And we want you to be president. Peter, what? Why would you ask me? I'm, uh, I'm a property guy. I don't do anything about gold or mining or oil and gas. And he said, "No, you are a goer. You get things done. You roll up your sleeves and make things happen. And you're trustworthy. And David and I respect you. And we'd like you to do it." I was so flattered and so taken back, and I went home, talked to Ray, and. And Ray, pretty wise, he said, well, if you say no, that might be the end of your career. But anyway, I said yes, and we did roll up my sleeves and get stuck at it, and we founded this company, and and uh, I was president of it, and we got it going, and then uh, got more diverted into the gold side, of the, into the oil and gas side of the business, and that led to my moving from, our moving from Toronto to First of all, Tulsa, Oklahoma, where we'd bought an oil and gas company, and then on to Houston, where we had another oil and gas company, uh, and uh, built those up. And uh, I'm, I'm uh, just very, very grateful for the support and encouragement that Peter gave me over many, many years. When your background is in real estate and property development and all of a sudden you're made a different offer, the qualities of the character of your life are recognised by people who headhunt you or cherry-pick you for these sorts of positions. And so you didn't just land into a new office. You went and did a crash course in geology so you could understand gold and oil and gas. So the adaptability there, uh, is this something that comes back to some of those character traits forged at the sheep station too? I suppose they do. I suppose they do. I'm I'm, uh, always, uh, I have always been intellectually inquisitive and I suppose that's one of the reasons why I did well in my studies and uh, I've, I was told I had the highest grades since 1929. So it was a pretty flattering and won all the prizes and so on. And that's because hey, I worked hard and because I wanted to find the real answers. And then I lectured in the areas for a number of years, examination and so on. And I suppose when I had a new challenge like that, I wanted to least understand what the terms were. <laughs> when you uh, meet people in the industry, they use a whole lot of terms that you only occasionally stumble across. And I want to get a bit of an understanding, so I got stuck into that. 
and that was very helpful. And uh, and I I must tell you that Peter Monk, the chairman, is extremely intelligent. He was a he's now past, extremely intelligent, and uh, and it was very very good to work with. And uh, as I say in my book, one of the outstanding things about him is that he's never too proud to take advice. And so he'd, uh, he would uh, ask me to have a cup of tea with him. And so I'd just uh, come up with this idea to do this. And I'd say, hmm, what about we do it that way? Oh, Tony, that's a much better idea. Instantly changes his mind if he thought it was a better idea. Uh, it's so attractive in top-level business. Often you find people who think they know it all and they're not willing to listen or debate or discuss. Or And Peter was completely the opposite. And it was a real, real joy to, to work with. You say in your book, in working with Peter Monk and into a very big and exciting resources company, gold, oil and gas. Interestingly, you were well paid in the position, but he had a very particular way that he was really, in some sense, I think you describe, bringing out the best in you when he suggested that when you travel, and you were doing a lot of travelling, I mentioned in the early introduction, uh, on the Concorde aircraft, as casually as most people catch a bus, but he said to you, why don't you take Ray, your wife, with you on your travels? And that was an expensive exercise to go on the Concorde first class, but it was something that you hold very dear, that in the sense of your boss uh, saying you couldn't travel with your wife, you took that and uh, to heart and uh, were very inspired by that. I I was Neil. It was a absolute joy. Uh, we uh, I, at one stage it was the period when we're getting Barrack off the ground. I spent thirty five percent of my nights in a foreign country and leave Toronto go to Europe every few weeks and uh, anyway, all over the world. And uh, Peter picked this up and said, oh, it's not fair to Ray. Why don't you take Ray with you and, and we'll pay? And so I'd say to Ray, well, I'm going to Paris next Thursday. Would you like to come? I'd love to come. So off we'd go to Paris. And it was so good because she did the laundry lists and organized the receptions at the end of the day. I'm out, out there raising money for a new company, and she was enormous help. And then I'd say to her, well, I'm going to Ankara uh, in two weeks. Do you want to go? Well, I was in Ankara last week. Oh, why would I want to go back to Ankara? You know, after a while, uh, have you been to the places once? You're not so keen to go a second time a, a few weeks later. And so that the extent of the, the cost of it wasn't through the roof. And I made, in fact, a very uh, crude estimate and came to the conclusion that we'd spent about $50,000 on uh, airfares for Ray, her accommodation, of course, has just included my accommodation and so on. And I thought to myself, wow, it's given me so much delight and pleasure and honour for 50000 If Peter had said, Tony, I'll give you a bonus of 50000 uh, on my salary in those days, well, it was a bit paltry. And I'd have had to pay tax on it. With her 
included that was tax-free. It was created so much joy in my heart and raised too. A very, very smart move. And I've never found anybody before or since who'd done the, a similar thing. Treating our staff well is a key, no doubt, to bringing out the best in loyalty. Yes, I suppose that's right. That's right. Uh, and and uh, in the book, I quote uh, uh, two or three letters that exchanges of correspondence I've had with Peter, which just shows the enormous mutual respect. That's just fantastic. And. Uh, Travelling on the Concorde uh, all over the world, you were mixing yes. with all sorts of uh, famous people. You tell the story of your encounters with Paul and Linda McCartney and with the yes. actor Christopher Reeve, who played Superman, and uh, you've got your reflections on them. We won't go into those details about those encounters. Uh, listeners might not need to get the book to get those, but I want to take you to age 47, uh, you describe it as a midlife crisis and a yep. significant year for you, and you began to pay attention to your spiritual life. What was happening yes. there? Yes. Well, thank you. Um, um, uh, uh, for some strange reason, we'd sporadically gone to church. You know, we might have been in New York on a Sunday. Would you like to go to church? Oh, yeah, that's not a bad idea. But we weren't regular churchgoers by any means. And uh, I met Michael Yusuf in Atlanta, uh, introduced by a fellow who was intrigued by my connection with Egypt and uh, introduced me over lunch. Michael said, I've just started a new church and I'd love you to come along. And uh, after pestering us a bit, we went along on Christmas Eve uh, with our kids, our three and three friends from college and uh we filled up a whole pew and uh, absolutely loved the service. And uh, Michael did, was, as Michael, uh, as all good pastors should, came and visited us uh, a week uh, after we'd been there to uh, to sort of find out more about us and uh, sort of welcome us to the church. In the meantime, Ray and I had had a terrible argument and uh, Ray said, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. I'm going to go back to Australia. And I said, oh, that's fine. I've just heard that so many times. And uh, I went off to uh, a tennis ranch to play tennis for a couple of days. And I came back and Ray had gone. And I couldn't believe that she had the courage to do it. And Michael came just after I got back and, uh, and said, where's Ray? And I said, she's gone back to Australia. We have this awful row. I was absolutely broken, in tears. And uh, he said, you need Jesus. And I said, no, I need help. I didn't know who Jesus was. And uh, anyway, he sat down with me. We prayed. I sought forgiveness and um, wept extensively. And... um, my life changed. Uh, with Dr. Michael Yusuf, yes. he led you in some ways here that gave you new perspective on your life, that your life doesn't revolve around you. You were not the centre of the universe. I wonder if you can reflect on how things were changing with your encounter with Jesus Christ. Well, it's absolutely amazing. And, of course, not having a, 
been steeped in a Christian background. I didn't really understand it, and I'm not sure how it all emerged. But Michael is very, Michael Yusuf, very, very smart with uh, business people in particular. And uh, he knows how to encourage them. One of the things he did, which I thought was uh, crazy at the time, but he asked me, here I was saved in January, and he asked me in February if I'd lead a Bible study group. And I said, Michael, I don't do anything about the Bible. And and he said, no, you're a leader. Uh, You'll be good at it. So I started in May and uh, with a group at home and uh, got to enjoy it and like it and I got encouraged. I ended up leading five Bible studies a week, uh, typically early in the morning, but I was doing one at the church and one at home and so on. And uh, what had happened, what happened is that I learned something about the Bible because I was so intent on uh, not making a fool of myself when I was reading the studies. I did did so much work and make so many notes that I, in fact, taught myself the Bible in the process. Danny, and a very smart mover, Michael. These were hard times for you as well, uh, those Christian early Christian years. They because were. Uh, they under were. Michael Yusuf, uh, you reflect on your involvement in church and Christian ministry at the time. You were developing a software company called ClickChoice.com and uh, yes. you almost uh, lost it all. Uh, take us I, into I, some I, of this I, hardship. I, 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 we did, in fact, uh, lose it all. We, we were. I had some uh, plans to raise capital, and uh, was unsuccessful. Couldn't raise the amounts that we needed, and poured more and more of our savings in there, and got to a point where we sold our two cars to generate some cash, and we got further and further behind, and uh, blow me down if. Uh, and we didn't have our house foreclosed on. We lost our house. So we had no house, a little, tiny little bit of furniture left, no cars, and we were broke. We were wondering how we'd be able to feed ourselves. And we had amazing support from people just unexpectedly. We came home from church one Sunday, and there's a $100 note pinned to the door, and it just said, we love you. No idea from where it came. One idea. One time I was invited to breakfast by a comfortable professional man who said, come to my uh, car afterwards, come to the trunk of the car, as they say in America. And he uh, pulled out a checkbook and gave me $5,000. And he said, there's, there's only one condition. I want you, when you uh, are able, to pass that on to someone else which we later did. We did pass it on to somebody else, and I said there were two conditions. One is you pass it on to someone else, and the second condition is you ring Joe Spence and thank him because he was the source of it. And, uh, of course, Joe was absolutely tickled that, A, I was free, and, B, that the money was being circulated again. Fantastic idea. So we struggled for a while, uh, quite a while, and... Eventually met a fellow from the Netherlands, very famous software man, and he came to visit us, was really taken with what we're doing, 
and the following morning said to me over breakfast, would 10 million do? <laughs> I said, yes. And uh, he invested 10 million and another 15 million. And we built it up to 50 people and took it public. So it was incredible uh, a recovery from a very sad situation. Another Tony, at risk of losing some momentum here, let's pause yeah. a moment because undoubtedly yeah. there are listeners tuned in to us today. Uh, we're talking to people uh, and in New South Wales and Victoria where in particular there's some real hardship going on. Some people lost their jobs, uh, feeling right. as though uh, all hope has dried up. I wonder whether you've right. got a thought or two here Having heard that a high flyer can come close to losing it all and your sustaining faith in God, I wonder if you've got a word of wisdom for people who might be going through something beyond difficult right now. Well, thank you. One of the things we learned uh, was that we, in those days, Ray and I used to kneel beside the bed to pray every evening. And now we're we're in our 80s. We, <laughs> we're not capable of kneeling by the bed, but uh, we never miss uh, our evening prayers. But we we uh, we found ourselves just unable to concentrate to pray because we we're so jagged by the uh, the financial predicament, and uh, we learned to concentrate on giving thanks for what we had and uh, that was in fact given that idea was given to us by one of Michael Yusuf's assistants who has said concentrate on giving thanks for what you do have and uh, let the other things flow and that was a huge huge thing and also uh, in parallel we were big well we were supporters of a ministry called Walk Through the Bible. And uh, I was on the President's Council, and we went to a retreat one weekend. And uh, we the retreat uh, involved uh, several lectures, uh, talks on uh, John 15, the vine, how God prunes you to make you bear more fruit. So if you remain in Christ and, uh, and are faithful to him, uh, he will. You can be. You can be sure he'll come along and clip you to help you become more productive. And you know when it's happening. When you're broke, when it's happening, you wonder what the heck I've done wrong. Why am I being punished like this? And don't realize that that uh, he's uh, setting you up for something else. And. Uh, uh, we we made a huge effort to confess all known and unknown sins so that we could benefit from that and blow me down if he didn't just ring us. Well, he brought us this investor and just changed our, our life. And we came back to Australia uh, uh, and just completely different people uh, after almost 30 years abroad and uh, huge believers in uh, how God honours the faithfulness uh, to him. The encouragement is God can change the trajectory at any moment and uh, to keep that thankful heart and expect 
with hope that God is going to intervene in your circumstances. Age 47, a midlife crisis, an encounter with Jesus, and your life was on a different direction from this time forward. Uh, you yes. met the founder of the organization Half Time, Bob Buford. Yes. And, uh, yes. of course, Half Time is all about what you're going to do with the second half of your life to make it count for yes, the things exactly of God. Right. And you've exactly now begun right. to in, you, you began to invest yourself in the projects that were about kingdom orientation. Uh, take us exactly. into some of those. Well, we, uh, w- when we're in, still in Atlanta, we found that I founded a, a ministry to protect uh, people, families from pornography and raised a lot of money, about a million dollars to get that underway in Atlanta, involved all the major churches in Atlanta, and uh, then became joined the board of the sort of a floating company uh, in that area, founded a, another organization called We Care America and worked with President Bush who, uh, who had decided that, uh, that, uh, that the, the best way to get uh, social work done was to for the federal government to invest in it through religious organizations. And we were responsible for bringing the religious organizations to the government. And, uh, and that was a great honor and a great piece of work. And then we uh, had, a, and I joined the board of, Opportunity International, came back to Australia, continued with that appointment. Before long, I was asked if I'd become chairman of uh, Habitat for Humanity. Uh, We were close to in Atlanta because that was the headquarters of this fantastic organization, builds houses for the working poor. And I, uh, when I joined them here in Australia, we were doing about three houses a year. When I left, we were doing about a thousand, and we had uh, the great joy, unbelievable joy, of uh, helping out following the tsunami uh, in Indonesia, particularly Aceh, and uh, collectively Habitat built about 25,000 houses to replace those that were washed away, and that was a huge, huge challenge and, and a great joy and much delight in that. And uh, whilst that was going on, I was approached uh, by Jim Wallace to join uh, opportunity uh, join the Australian Christian Lobby. Let's talk about those years because this was a very important element of your life, 10 years yeah, as chairman of the Australian yeah. Christian Lobby. And these were early years. Uh, what was yeah. going on in those early years? Well, the interesting uh, thing, when I joined up, we had about 3,500 members or supporters, and we've got 220-odd thousand now. It's grown enormously, and I don't mean that that's the result of my work, but, you know, obviously it was part of the the effort to expand and uh, just had an unbelievable pleasure, and Jim was managing director at the time, and he retired. Lyle Shelton became managing director, and I'm, I fell, fell in love with Lyle, who I respect enormously, and I uh, keep in touch with him probably once a week uh, and, uh, and uh, try to help when I can, he. 
And then, of course, uh, when uh, Lyle retired, we appointed Martin Isles as just a sensation. And and uh, the, the organisation's gone from strength to strength. It's been a been an absolute joy to be associated with, and it's sort of uh, its success, its expansion, its impact has affected in so affected so many aspects of my life. But, you know, uh, I, I feel I'm getting some of the credit put on me, which is not. Not correct, but uh, I've uh, I've really really enjoyed that time, as I did with the other organisations, Habitat and Opportunity. Just one thing after another, they've been all have been sort of training. Uh, uh, and I was chairman of many public companies when I came back because I'd been president of the barrack. Uh, people uh, asked me to join. Uh, a number of uh, publicly listed companies in the mining sector, which I did, and I was chairman of one time, I was chairman of three companies at the same time, and that taught me about a lot about governance and and um, uh, policy development and so on, which was probably helpful to uh, Habitat and uh, and opportunity. Well, of them all. Tony, uh, so, uh, let's stay with the Australian Christian Lobby for a moment because one of the early yes. aims of the Australian Christian Lobby was to secure a place for Christianity in the public square. I wonder exactly. if you've got any reflection on how things have changed since you took on the role as chairman and, uh, of course, you're retired from that now and emeritus chairmanship role now, but... What are your thoughts about Christianity in the public square here in Australia today? Well, I think uh, it's fair to, fair to say, Neil, that uh, there's a, there's a, there's an increasing number of people who uh, don't like the influence of Christianity in the public square and uh, uh, are lashing out, and it's very difficult to maintain. Uh, Maintain your faith, maintain uh, uh, your course in the in the face of all this. We just every day we we learn new things, uh, uh, new legislation coming through. We're just constantly fighting. Uh, uh, it's getting worse and worse and tougher and tougher. We're about Queensland, where you are. Just had your your uh, terrible legislation on. Uh, giving doctors the right to go and kill their patients, and and we've had it introduced here in Sydney, and we're about to mount another fight here in New South Wales. And unfortunately, most people now are just tired of it and say, "Oh, well, let's just let it happen," without thinking about the principles. It's it's sick making. There's just an increasing amount of work to do. There's a necessity for having Christianity front and centre in the public yes. square. Tony, exactly. we're running short of time. You finish your yes. book with a chapter on advice to the younger me. Yes. What was your reflection? What would you have done differently? What would you have said to a young Tony McClellan? Oh, there, there's a, as you say, there's a chapter there, but uh, I'm... Uh, uh, I'm I'm very 
uh, I, I think, done wryly. But uh, I, I really wanted to say to the young Tony, if he were at, at uh, 16, 15, taking over from his dad, what I'd, what I'd like, like to have known then and, uh, and uh, share with this metaphorical young Tony my, my advice to him. And I, I, I've said a whole lot of things, and including, you know, getting, getting your priorities right. Uh, do what it takes. Focus on one thing. Uh, it's so easy to get waylaid and and diverted. Uh, examine your life. I remember saying that it's uh, that uh, you know we have to keep thinking about uh, what the things we're doing. How uh, is this making the world uh, a better place? Encourage getting your priorities right, and so on. And uh, in the in the final thing, I. I uh, talk about uh, grace and I uh, tell the story of the Habsburgs and uh, uh, the the burial of the final leader and uh, how he is uh, finally, they introduce him in a humble way. We bear the body of Franz Joseph, our brother, a sinner like us all, and I end up by saying that uh, the doors swung open and the body was allowed into the family crypt and, uh, and neither wealth nor, nor fame can open the ways of salvation, which is only available through God's grace given to those who will humbly acknowledge their need. And that, young Tony, is the most important advice I can give you. And may God bless you as you earnestly seek his face. Important I'm, to um, reflect I'm, on. Uh, at the end of my, later in my time, wanting to make the point that uh, to young people, I hope, that they'll think about this now, not at age 47. Well, your business career and your humanitarian work, your work with the Australian Christian Lobby, all of these uh, wonderful dimensions, uh, we haven't even had time to get on to another uh, project, the Chrysos Corporation, a partnership with the CSIRO. Uh, That's given you uh, all sorts of freedoms in your older years, uh, working with delivering faster and safer and accurate ways to analyse gold, uh, things that many of us might not even think about. But I'll have to leave listeners to read that part of your story in your book. Uh, One last uh, just dimension. Uh, These days uh, you're battling some health issues. Uh, you mentioned polymyalgia rheumatica. How are you and Ray going health-wise in your older years? Well, it's very nice of you to ask. I, I believe the polymyalgia rheumatica is under control and taking uh, steroids, and they they have uh, removed all the pain, and I'm weaning off them gradually, and I believe we'll be off them totally in another few months. So I'm not. I'm totally relaxed about that. Ray has. Thank you. Ray has had uh, two heart attacks. She goes back every uh, six months and has another heart test come through with flying colours. So uh, uh, thanks God, we are both well. 
And, uh, but, you know, <laughs> we're getting on in years. Can't do the things we used to do. But uh, we're enjoying our retirement very well and this blessing of this incredible investment in Corporation is just absolutely extraordinary. And God knew that uh, if he blessed it, that we'd give the money away. And uh, so he said, I, I can rely on the McClellans. I know what they're going to do. I'll bless them. Well, the boy from the bush, growing up on a sheep station, Jumble Plains, Tony McClellan, a special honour to you. What a wonderful story it is. And your dimensions uh, of uh, working with Australian Christian Lobby and those humanitarian organisations, just wonderful. I want to point listeners, this is the sort of book that you will enjoy. You need this one on your bookshelf, and no doubt it'll be one you'll come back to time and again for inspiration. Tony McClellan has just released his story. The book is called A Glorious Ride from Jumble Plains to Eternity. I mentioned earlier it's written with political and cultural commentator Nick Cater, and there's a foreword by the former Prime Minister John Howard. There is a way you can get a hold of it. Simply Google A Glorious Ride from Jumble Plains to Eternity. It'll be available from all online booksellers. And uh, there is some websites around all sorts of dimensions of Tony's involvement. There is one called the McClellanFoundation.org. Is that one that people can connect with you in some ways with, Tony? Well, that won't give any particular information about us, but uh, I'm always available. Uh, I have a web address, Tony at McClellanFoundation.org. People can contact me there at any time. And always like to meet new people, I can tell you that. All right. And an invitation there for listeners, Tony at McClellanFoundation.org. The book is That's A it. Glorious Ride from Jumble Plains to Eternity. Tony McClellan, thanks so much for taking some time to share your thoughts and your heart with listeners today on 2020. Neil, you're wonderful. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.